0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner or better yet, go to the Telegram t.me for slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also check out the website, Bitcoin Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on bitcoinandmarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoy the episode. Subscribe, like, share. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. All right, guys, something a little bit different today. I did do a live stream reaction to Peter Zion yesterday, but when I was uh, editing it, it wasn't precise enough. It was kind of went on a lot of tangents and I think I can do better. So on this episode, I'm going to re-record that uh, reaction to Peter Zion, go through what he said and other things about uh, his geopolitical thought. So first off, uh, Peter Zion, I've been familiar with him for Several years. Uh, I've read two of his books. His first book, I think it was his first book, was like America, the Unwitting Superpower, or Unwilling Superpower, or something like that. And then uh, his second book was uh, Disunited Nations, or at least the second book that I read. I haven't read his most recent book. Um, I like the emphasis on demographics. I like the emphasis on geography. I don't agree with a lot of his conclusions. Um, I think. He's one of these people that believes in a lot of fake narratives. You can tell his, he, you can tell that he's familiar with a lot of different subjects, different topics and fields of study and things like that, but most of them at a surface level. And he, then he does a decent job of knitting them together. But a lot of his conclusions, I disagree with them for the fact that they're very linear thinking you know he takes it to the absurd up, up extreme so if there is like a demographic trend of you know a fertility rate of 1 in some society he says oh that society is going to disappear right he says this about china he says this about russia he says this about i don't know if he has said those exact words about uh, germany and you know, Western Europe, but he's definitely said it about China and about Russia that they will cease to exist. I have a lot of the same short-term maybe conclusions that he has with demographic trends. Like once you learn some things about the demographics of different places, it changes your view of the future. And so for instance, you know, China with a fertility rate of one, their population is going to be cut in half in a generation. And that's already been dialed in like you can't get away from that it's going to happen to China but going from 1.3 roughly 1.3 billion to 650 million is not the end of China okay it's not that China is over Uh, the, the CCP most likely is over or this incarnation of China is over but Peter Zion likes to conclude a lot of things like makes you think that these places will be deleted from the map And then that, that area will no longer have human beings on it. You know, it's kind of like thinking in a bankruptcy of a company that all of those durable goods, all of those employees, all that money just disappears. But that's not how bankruptcies work. You know, the, the, uh, it goes under new ownership. Uh, it, It gets sold off to people. You get paid pennies on the dollar, you know, cents on the dollar say, Say some company owed you a um, million dollars, you might get only 750,000 $750, back. But that's because they went through bankruptcy and you could only claw back that amount. So it's not like you're going to zero. It's not like uh, all this stuff. So th- that's like with these demographic trends in these countries is, yeah, the, it's written now mathematically that they will shrink by 50% in a certain period of time but that can change, you know, long-term, I have a much more natural vibe to my understanding of geopolitics and long-term, a place has to have a sustainable population. It's not like a place is going to constantly have lower and lower population, but we will have ebbs and flows, peaks and troughs to population. Think about like um, foxes and rabbits, you know, when the rabbit population, increases, then you can support more foxes. And then when the rabbit population decreases, it can't support as many foxes and it goes down. Uh, But I'm not saying this from a Malthusian point of view. I'm saying this from a natural balancing effect of the market, the market and the, and nature, you know, the market is nature and nature just has a natural balancing act that it does. And so if you have this huge population spike, which we've had in the last in the 20th century, you know, the, um, I mean, look at any population chart of the last 500 years and it's just insane what's happened to the population of the planet. Nobody can look at that chart and say that this is not a bubble, right? And so the the subconscious human animal has responded to this, I believe by decreasing its fertility rate and that will cut the population. Maybe the global population will be cut in half in the next hundred years from nature, balancing it out somehow, right? Subconsciously, it's not like it's going to be centrally planned in some places. It could be, uh, it could be a process of war, which I don't think we're going to get in here today, but the, the process of war could cause a lot of people to die. Uh, there's all sorts of other things that can affect the population level, but Peter has this like linear absurd conclusion that The Chinese people are going to go extinct. The Russian people are going to go extinct. This is how it is going to be. Of course, that's not the case. But anyway, so he spends a long time on that. He's also a big into, you know, he bought bit off on the the jab. He thought this was the only way to get out of the the situation. He was big into lockdowns or seeing that it was okay. And he um, was not, I don't know if he ever said that he's for coercive jabbing but he's like jabbing is the only way to get out of this and if you don't do your jab you know we need to get to a certain percentage to get out of this if we don't get to you know 80 percent jab then we're in big trouble and all this of course i was wrong 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 Uh, he has a very surface level understanding of most of these subjects and i'm not saying i have a better grasp but i think i have a better intuition about these things too Um, what else the j6 he bit off on all the fake news about j6 all the worst, most outrageous mainstream media, completely fake news. He believed, and he ran with that, and he built that into his models. You know, absurd, absurd. And with his Russia thing, he he did not uh, predict what was happening. He said, "Okay, demographically, I'm looking at Russia demographically, and they are running up to their end of their useful life. They need to have some." push, final push towards securing their borders and strategic depth just to give themselves a shot, right? That's the next five to 10 years or whatever he said, there has to be some sort of push out to the board to defendable borders. And a lot of this is because average uh, 80% of all engineers in Russia or something, you know, are retiring very soon. And the their life expectancy in Russia is lower so most of them are going to die even if they don't retire so like you have this this demographic complete demographic structural shift that's going to happen in Russia in the next 10 years so they're come up to their last gasp of having this power base to expand uh you know to push their borders out but it was also goaded on by the west right so he didn't see the precise details of this, he saw one aspect of the demographics, and he was directionally correct, but for uh, only a fractional correct reason, where by contrast, in December and January, December of 2021 and January 2022, I was saying on my newsletter and in different places that this, you know, there's, if this invasion is going to happen, it's probably going to happen in this six-week window. I see that the Russians are massing on the border. I see that there's breakdown in diplomacy. I see all these other things. What's going on with the West and the shelling of Donetsk City? And so I see all these things happening. And I'm like, well, this six-week window is climatically or or seasonally the best to invade. Most likely it's going to happen in this six-week window. And I was off. I think it happened a week after my window or two weeks after my window. But you know, I was right there specifically predicting this, where he was predicting this for just a fractional marginal reason. So anyway, that's what I would have to say about that geopolitically. So I agree with some of his stuff. i'm I'm a bull on America for many of the same reasons. Uh, bear on China, bear on Russia, bear on um, most emerging markets, but uh, for similar reasons, but i I take a much different tact at it. I also have a much, much better understanding, I believe, of the monetary system, the financial system. Money in general, and we're going to get a clue of this with his idea of Bitcoin. Uh, so that's what we're going to be responding to here is the um, his take on Bitcoin. It was just horrendous. So, I mean, I shouldn't start off like that. Uh, you guys decide what you think is his level of understanding and stuff. But uh, let's jump into this very first. Let me make sure I'm all not muted and all that. Okay, Let's go with Joe Rogan interviewing Peter Zion about Bitcoin. Um, Crypto.
1: Yeah, it was always a hot dumpster fire. Um, Always? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna say that it was all fraud. Some of it was a pyramid scheme. Uh, There's never been anything there. (laughs) What
0: was a pyramid scheme exactly? You know, what was fraud? Was it, is this some monolithic thing uh, that you're responding to? And Joe Rogan, I think he's the best interviewer in the world, I believe currently. But he does a bad job here setting himself, setting up Peter with the word crypto instead of saying, what about crypto and Bitcoin? What about Bitcoin? You know, different things. Instead of just crypto and then Peter just lumps everything into some monolithic thing. And fraud from a private company is the same as fraud from a founder of a network, same as fraud of a bitcoin core developer or a bitcoin hodler you know whatever it's all fraud it's all the same it's a pyramid scheme all everything all of it so you know that language doesn't quite make any sense um but i'll also add here that this is at the end of the interview so this is minute one hour 48 into a two-hour interview so he's probably kind of tired and he does say a few wrong words in here so i'll give
1: him the benefit of the doubt but uh yeah let's keep going Yeah, I'm not going to say that it was all fraud. Some of it was a pyramid scheme. There's never been anything there. Uh, It serves no purpose. It's not a store of value. It's not a medium in exchange. And as we have seen, if you want it decentralized and not under government control, it is a haven for fraudsters. And now it's in the process of going to zero, except for Bitcoin, which will probably go negative. Because if we're moving into a world with carbon taxes, you have to take into account the energy that it took to produce it in the first place.
0: Okay, lots in there um first off when he said that um it's not a store value or medium of exchange of course it is a store value objectively empirically it is a store value not moment to moment but on a you know a yearly time frame an annual time frame it's a store value uh it also is a medium of exchange it's used as a medium of exchange in many things in this world bitcoin i'm speaking bitcoin Uh, Of course, when he talks about crypto and he lumps it all into one, he's talking about some crypto is a medium of exchange. What does that mean? Obviously, he doesn't understand this. What does that mean? That it's not a store value. It's not a medium of exchange. What crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, uh, DeFi. What are you talking about here? Uh, Then he talks about decentralization. Well, of course, the only thing that's really decentralized is Bitcoin everything else is centralized so DeFi, even though it's supposed to be decentralized finance is a scam it's a sham it's centralized ethereum centralized uh everything else in except for bitcoin is centralized but like um he says when something's decentralized it's it's a haven for fraudsters okay well isn't the economy decentralized like the economy is supposed to be decentralized the ecosystem around Bitcoin is decentralized. There's all sorts of different players and things. You could think of it as a decentralized market. So the market is a den of fraudsters. Okay, interesting. Anyway, we've done some Bitcoiners have done measurements on this. And yes, early on in Bitcoin, it was 25 to 50% maybe of the transactions were illicit, you know, buying drugs or on dark net markets or something like that. Very, very early, maybe the first year. And it slowly has become less and less. For the last several years, it's only, the studies have shown, it's only been less than 1% of total volume of Bitcoin. It's for illicit purposes. And guess how much volume Bitcoin network had last year? Over a trillion. It was, I think it was $1.3 trillion was transacted over the Bitcoin network last year. Less than 1% of that was illicit. So, no, this is not a den of fraudsters and thieves. This is uh, a great, thriving marketplace of free exchange. It's a decentralized market. That's what it is. All right, let's continue.
1: Well, that's certainly playing out with, like, FTX. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're finding out that there will th- be it's more House of Cards. Yeah, do, be more. do you feel like that's just sort of opened the door for people to examine all of crypto now? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like as soon as you have one of the big ones go down, it's just and just a go down of, catastrophically yeah. within a week. Yeah, I mean, just there, there's no intrinsic value to this asset, mm. and now it's starting to be priced appropriately. So it has a you know what's Bitcoin at sixteen thousand. It has another seventeen thousand to go down. Duh. Really? Yeah, there's, like, there, there's no intrinsic value to this product. All right.
0: So uh, first off, he talks about FTX being one of the big ones. Now, FTX is a company. Uh, it is not a network. It did have the FTT token. So it did have a token. I believe it was on Ethereum and Solana or something, right? It didn't even have its own network. It was just a token. Um, but I'm I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. But FTX was a company and companies go down all the time. Companies go bankrupt all the time. And we'll talk. I think we'll talk about that here in a second if I remember what he says here next. But um, uh, then he was saying that it has no intrinsic value. And he uses scare quotes to say intrinsic value. Well, guess what, Peter? That's Econ 101. Nothing has intrinsic value. Nothing has intrinsic value. All value is subjective. It depends on what you're willing to pay for it. And a market, what a market does is a market sets a market clearing price. It helps to balance supply and demand and it will clear the market at a price. It's the marginal, last marginal price that clears the market. That's it. And we want prices to fluctuate. So, all this stuff about central bankers wanting. Stable prices, I mean, that's ridiculous. We don't want stable prices. We want prices to fluctuate so we can get information about the marketplace. We want prices to fluctuate. Stable prices is a misnomer. We don't want super high runaway inflation, you know, rising prices. But we do want price fluctuations. We want some prices to go up and we want prices, some prices to come down. We want prices to fluctuate. We don't don't want stable prices. But anyway, um, no intrinsic value. Nothing has intrinsic value. There's some things that have a base use case value, but those use cases only happen or only are good at a certain price, at market clearing price. So everything has subjective value. There's no such thing as intrinsic value. Not even gold has intrinsic value, nothing has intrinsic value. Even the dollar, he might say, can be paid for your, can be used to pay your taxes. But that is a subjective law created by people, right? They have subjectively valued the dollar to be used as taxes at a certain rate. No, it's it's everything comes down to subjectivity and there is no such thing as intrinsic god-given value. It doesn't doesn't exist. Um and then he said it which is funny about the price of Bitcoin is 16000 and it inherently is $17,000 overvalued, which I think is kind of funny because let's take a look at this. The price today is $17,300 as I'm recording this, $17,300. So maybe he says it's $18,000 overvalued. So anyway, he, that's, a, that's a moving target that he'll never be able to hit. And um, what else? Um, oh, it's negative because of carbon tax. That's a ridiculous argument as well. Bitcoin actually lowers emissions in many places, you know, like flare mining with gas flares. It cuts the emissions of the gas flare burning by two thirds. The moratorium that was put on in New York State uh, that set some outrageous limit, like 90% of your power had to come from renewables, where the Bitcoin industry, the Bitcoin miners in New York, was they were at 50 or 60% renewable which is the highest in any industry. They are the highest in any industry by far of using renewable energy, but somehow they set this arbitrary bar at 90% so that they could put all these Bitcoin miners out of business. You're setting back renewables by doing this, right? Um, There's a lot of things where Bitcoin uses hydropower, um, which is renewable, right? It doesn't have emissions. Then you have things like creating a base load for a grid, for a power plant so that they can run at peak efficiency and burn energy more efficiently and waste less by ramping up and down their power output. So it's a net positive on emissions. So if all of this total, there's been lots of work done by Bitcoiners and it's fascinating uh, the work that's been done. But we're, Bitcoin is roughly net neutral. Now, what about all the banks? What about all the electricity that it takes to run the lights at a bank, at all the banks? What about all the computers at banks? You know, um, what about all the material production that goes into making the building, the physical brick and mortar bank? There's all sorts of things that go into emissions of an industry. And by far, the banking industry is much more of a polluter than Bitcoin. So that's just ridiculous to say this. What else? I, I think it's a very interesting meme that I, I hope maybe next year. I, I've seen it multiple years, but I hope it really catches on one of these years where, you know, all of the Christmas lights every year burns more energy than Bitcoin. And it's probably three to one or something. So just two weeks of Christmas lights burns more energy than all of the year for Bitcoin. And then you can go into other appliances: toasters, dishwashers, um, uh, water heaters. I mean, all sorts of things that use so much power more than Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin is by far one of the cleanest industries in the world, cleanest, and it's, that's by design. You know, it's by the incentive structure of Bitcoin. It seeks out these types of renewables. It provides the base load for the power plants. But it also provides a baseload for renewables to get that hydropower plant up and running to maybe push in some more funding into uh, renewable energy because bitcoin will Bitcoin will buy it you know so there is all of this stuff out there that bitcoin is a a net positive. so carbon tax, give me a break it's just it's just ignorant. Let's continue with this.
1: Duh. Really? Yeah. There's, like, there's no intrinsic value to this product. And do you think that people just inherently like lost faith in the idea behind crypto because of FTX? Well, and because of... it became an ideology. And whenever you invest based on an ideology, you're going to make some decisions that are a little divorced from math.
0: That, that's the opposite. So Bitcoin investment is based on math. It's based on 21 million. It's based on supply and demand. It's based on understanding of economics, it's based on math. That's what actual investment in Bitcoin is, science and math. He has it exactly backwards.
1: And how, what do you mean by ideology? Well, p- the people who really like crypto are convinced that it's the currency of the future and that a decentralized ledger is the way to go and that anything that is controlled by a government entity is by definition a negative and if it's done by the private sector freely, it will be better. And that's just not how currency works.
0: Okay, so this is a chartalist idea that um, money is from and of the government of course, we empirically know that's not true because there's money used in places that specifically prohibit, that the government specifically prohibits money. There is still money being used, like in prisons. Um, so we know empirically that that argument is false. Um, but what else do you say here, ideology? Oh, he said crypto is the currency of the future. Well, see that's, again, with the words, uh he's not making any sense because what crypto what currency what token is the currency of the future? You can't just say crypto that's like saying uh banking is the currency of the future. What the hell are you talking about? Banking, but banks deal with money, right, so what money are they dealing with? It's not banks, it's not crypto that's the f- currency of the future. it's Bitcoin is the currency of the future so Anyway, then he said about decentralization. Um, he Well, he'll get into the trust
1: argument. Let me play this a little bit. Currency is a method of exchange and a store of value. And for that, there has to be a degree of trust, and you have to have it managed in terms of volume.
0: Okay, so managed, trust, this chartalist idea. Uh, of course, yes, money is trust, but commodity money, what commodity money does is it minimizes trust. Because if I have that gold coin or that, private key for Bitcoin in my hand. I don't have to trust anyone. I just have to trust my five senses that I hold this money. Period. The system we have now, yes, is built on trust. We must trust the government. We must trust the banks. We must trust the payment provider. We must trust other governments. Okay, we must trust the counterparty risk. Every dollar right now is a dollar of debt. And debt, by definition, cannot be one individual. You can't hold it in your hand. It is, by definition, counterparty risk money. Right. And so you have to trust somebody else. Now, Peter should agree with this that in a deglobalizing world, which he thinks is happening. In a deglobalizing world where trust is breaking down, international institutions are losing sway. You know, the UN has become a joke with the recent votes about uh, Ukraine and uh, the recent treatment of places like China. It's a joke. Nobody cares about it. Everyone sees it as a joke at the highest levels and the highest halls of power. They all see it as a tool, not as an actual legitimate international organization uh, the imf same way wto who of course Um, world court see these institute international institutions work when people buy into it okay and they bought into it over the last 75 years because the availability of credit and the availability of new technology and the uh, ability to grow like at breakneck speeds right So if you were China, you wanted to be in the WTO because you could have access to all of these different trade partners and you could build up your economy through credit at 20% a year, you know, growth rate. You can't shake a stick at 20% growth rate, but you can shake a stick at zero growth rate. So all of these international institutions are losing trust. They're breaking down, supply chains are shortening. The world is breaking up into different pieces here and uh, trust is going away. So in that, how can you have a credit based global financial system that's based 100 percent on international trust, you know, trust in general and trust breaks down? How does that work exactly? Well, you have to adopt a money that embodies that trust in and of itself. See, the reason why we had gold or silver as money isn't because there wasn't a government willing to be a credit based global reserve currency. It's because nobody trusted them. The French wouldn't use a pure British fiat pound, right? Uh, The Russians wouldn't use a currency from Poland that had, um, you know, didn't have any backing to it. It's the backing that gave it the trust necessary to cross borders and be used as money because the commodity itself embodied the trust. So in a system that's deglobalizing and trust is falling apart, as Peter says, we're going to go back to commodity-based money. And since Bitcoin is the tip of the spear, the best thing that we've ever had for commodity-based money that can be sent uh, anywhere in the globe and settled and assayed perfectly in 10 minutes it is what's going to be used as this proxy for international trust, okay? Now, if that is not, <laughs> that's not intrinsic value, but if if Peter doesn't think that's intrinsic value, what else is there, you know, to intrinsic value?
1: So anyways, um, that's, let's keep going on this. I mean, one of the, the craziest things about Bitcoin uh, is that there will never be more than X number of units of Bitcoin. Well, by default, that means it can't be used for trade. Because the whole idea of economic activity is that there's expansion, which means you need more currency to lubricate and manage that expansion.
0: Okay, so I think he's I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on this since it is late in the interview that he's saying trade requires expansion. No, uh growth requires expansion, not trade. Trade is one-to-one. Growth, though, would be you need elasticity, but that is because we are built on a credit-based system right now. We have a credit-based global financial system every dollar is a dollar of debt so you have to add debt and how do you add debt you make loans so lending is a way to expand the money supply but why do you get loans because you're bullish about the future and you're opening up a new assembly line or a new factory or you're you know doing some new business whatever the case is you're you're positive about the future you're taking out more loans Your profit rates are high, so you're taking out more loans because you can afford to pay back the relatively lower interest rate. And so your expected returns are higher, you're expanding, you're growing. Growing and inflation are the same. Credit, inflation, and growth are the same thing in a credit-based system, which is what we have now. So what he's saying here is when you expand to, to have growth, you have to expand the money supply. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that he knows this, but I know he doesn't. But let's just say he does. all right. Now, Bitcoin is a completely different animal. It is commodity money. Growth and the supply of Bitcoin aren't the same thing. Just like growth and the supply of gold are not the same thing. You could hit a big you know vein of gold and have a hundred more tons come onto the market in a short period of time, the supply of gold, isn't about growth of the economy, okay? The supply of Bitcoin isn't about the growth of the economy. But also, you mi- people mix this up all the time about available circulation and fixed supply. So it's not like there's gonna be 21 million Bitcoins circulating at all times. Most likely, most of the time, there's gonna be less, like five or 10 million. So let's say there's 10 million, and in good times, you will have some circulation credit on top of Bitcoin. You will have commodity credit, you know, lending out from savings. You will have um, things like accounts receivable, which I put in the same category as uh, circulation credit. It's credit on top of Bitcoin. So you have these credit cycles and business cycles, even with Bitcoin. And during this time, the value of your Bitcoin will probably trend up and you will sell you that money will bitcoins will come out of the hordes maybe you'll get five million bitcoins to come out of the hordes and be sold on the open market what's going to happen to the value of that currency it's going to fall right and then as it falls bitcoins go back into hordes and then it goes up and comes out of hordes there's a dip there's a circulation pressure there's a credit pressure there's a business cycle so there's ebbs and flows to the available amount of bitcoin in the economy it does Move. It does change. It does adapt. All right, it does, and it does so in a precise, pure way. Much more pure than any currency that is expansionary. You know, even gold being dug out of the ground one to two percent a year, as the you know stock increasing compared or the flow increasing compared to the stock one or two percent a year, that is a distortion to prices. So the purest price signals come from a fixed supply, where the amount of available money on the market is perfectly in tune with the needs of the market. Of course, this is way beyond Peter's pay grade. I wish I was getting Peter's pay grade, but uh, that's uh, that's what I'd have to respond to that.
1: If currency is locked into a specific number, you get monetary inflation, and that is one of the fastest ways to destroy an economic model.
0: All right, and that's where I'm going to end it here. But he did just have, a, I think, a slip up there. He meant monetary deflation, uh, inflation of the price of something. So you have pricing going up. Um, Actually, let me play this next. Uh, So let me play a couple more seconds here because Joe Rogan trolls him real quick. Um, But he's saying basically a fixed supply causes value to go up, which means value will go down or something like that. But Joe Rogan tries to troll him here. Let's listen
1: to this. So because the lack of Bitcoin, because there's a certain controlled number, Mm -hmm. the only thing that can happen is Bitcoin becomes more expensive. Right.
0: Right. (laughs) Uh, So the value is going to zero because the value is going up, guys. Uh, just so you know, that's what Peter Zion thinks. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap it there. Thank you for joining me. Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. Check out BitcoinandMarkets.com for the website. So, uh, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Support me financially there if you would like to for $5 a month. I appreciate everyone that supports. Uh, also, follow, go to the Telegram, tme forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Uh, Twitter, Ansel Linder, at Ansel Linder. And YouTube, BTC Market Update. All right, I will check you guys on the next one. Bye.